on meditation and Buddhist practice, with the emphasis on practical application of the teachings. So if you have any questions about your practice, you're welcome to post them in the chat at any time. First 15 minutes from now until quarter after the hour, we will spend in silent meditation. So once you've asked your question, you can either do walking or sitting or walking and sitting. And at quarter after the hour, we will collect the questions that have been posted and begin to ask them with, again, preference on questions that are practical in nature and provide some guidance for people in their own practice. Okay, so from now until quarter after, silent meditation.
Okay, we're back. So from here on, we will restrict the chat to questions only. If you have any questions, again, post them in the chat at any time. If you don't have any questions, just sit back and stay mindful. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. When I note a wholesome thought, it disappears. Should I keep noting or let the thought stay for a while? Well, you're not. Your 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 focus isn't on making the thought go away. There's no such thing as a wholesome thought. Wholesome is the quality of mind when thinking or engaging in any activity. But wholesomeness requires mindfulness. Or mindfulness is the clearest and purest sort of wholesomeness. So whatever it is you're talking about as being a wholesome thought is never going to beat being mindful. Seeing The Buddha said, better to live one day seeing the arising and ceasing of phenomena than to live a hundred years and never see it. So seeing those thoughts disappear, is, if they do that for one day, it's better than you lived a hundred years and never saw it. More wholesome. So again, this isn't getting in the way of the thought staying, but when you note, of course, thoughts will cease because there's a new awareness, but thoughts cease anyway. A thought isn't a thing that, like a boat floating on the water, that you can either drown it or let it stay. The thought has already passed by the time you make a decision to stay or make it go or something like that. So you could cultivate another thought, or you could be mindful and as I've said, mindfulness is always the better choice. Because again, the thoughts are not wholesome in and of themselves. I am a 23-year-old student, and it's hard to let go of sensual desires and thoughts. Usually I end up having tasty food and watching media overnight. I feel I have no patience with my desires. Advice? Yeah, I just there's always this problem with um, this this um, these statements about letting go, because it doesn't sound like you're talking about letting go at all. It usually sounds like you're talking about getting rid of, which is not at all the same as letting go. It's almost as like like a euphemism, like like it sounds better to say letting go, but what you actually mean is you want to get rid of it. Letting go means not clinging and. In regards to sensual desires, it's even a little weirder because you're talking about not clinging to clinging, which of course happens, but it's maybe not what you think it is. You don't let go of clinging, you let go of the things that you're clinging to, <laughs> and then there's no clinging because letting go and clinging are the opposites, right? But you can cling on top of the sensual desire. For example, it sounds like you might be clinging to them because you're worried about them, and that's uh, a form of clinging. If you're uh, if you're averse to them or you feel guilty about them or that sort of thing, 
But the actual sensual desires aren't something you let go of. They're something that you destroy, that you abandon, because you let go of the things that you were clinging to. Instead of clinging to those things, you let go of them. So what you should be focusing on are the objects of your sensual desire. You can also focus on the sensual desire itself, but you should certainly um, be, be mostly focused on, on the things that give rise to sensual desire. And again, our focus is not on letting go. That should never be your focus. So if you talk about it being hard to let go, it seems like you're both missing the point and and that you're missing the point of the practice and the point of letting of the concept of letting go in the first place because letting go is not something you do. It's something that happens uh, through seeing clearly. And so our focus is on cultivating clear vision, seeing seeing things clearly as they are. When you see things clearly as they are, you'll see that they're not worth clinging to. And then it's not even so much a matter of letting go, it's a matter of never clinging in the first place because you saw clearly. So the, the clinging is abandoned, it's destroyed. It, it's the opportunity for the arising of desire uh, is done away with. Um, generally, um, the idea of something being hard is fine, and, and I don't criticize that for sure. But hard, the, really the, the accurate representation of what is hard is the um, cultivation of the skill, the capacity to be mindful. And that is, I don't even know if hard is the right word, it's something that just takes uh, effort. It takes practice. It takes um, diligence. So there's really no secret, and really the answer to the whole question or problem that you're propose that you're posing is really the practice of mindfulness. So I don't know if you read our booklet on how to meditate. If you've done our at-home course, if you, you're interested in that, that is what I would always propose that we have to offer, and it really is for the purpose of seeing clearly, which removes. Uh, over over through practice removes the arising of sensual desire i like the idea of saying you have no patience talking about patience with desires because that is important but it still may be missing the more important point of being patient with the objects of your desire as well don't forget that those are generally going to be the more uh, common object those things that are the object of your desire, including the pleasure which comes along with desire. You have to note all of those. When I meditate, I see vivid images and replays of places I've been, almost like a dream. I have strong, unpleasant reactions. Why are these images coming up? I practice the ways from your booklet. And why are my reactions so overwhelming? When memories come up outside of formal meditation, I am not having overwhelming reactions to them in this way. So we're not usually interested in the why of things. That has no real value. There's no great merit in learning why something happens. Um, I, theoretically, for your reassurance, I guess, but it shouldn't be where your focus is. Why are the images coming up? I mean, there is a reason. I mean, it's a silly thing to say, but 
it really doesn't go any further than that. There are reasons why those images are coming up. I mean, I don't know the exact working of your psyche, but it's not really hard to understand. That's how trauma works. Um, trauma may be not the right word, but trauma is one of the things. There's trauma, there's addiction, you know, attachment. Anything that has a strong emotional response, you can verify it for yourself. It tends to come back. It tends to develop this power in your mind and then you experience echoes of it. But that fact isn't really useful in and of itself. Um, we're much more interested in the fact that they do arise, and the fact that they give rise to strong reactions. So, again, why that's happening more in meditation, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way, but yes, it generally is that way, because in meditation you're more focused, you're less, um, you're, you're, pro you're provided with less diversion, you're less distracted, and so everything is going to be clearer and stronger. That's, um, that, that's helpful, because it allows you to see them more clearly. But uh, when it leads to stronger negative reactions, it can be unpleasant. But generally, that's a very beginner sort of problem. Uh, as you become more skilled in cultivating mindfulness, you are better able to face things that you couldn't face before without any, any reactions. But that's the key, is that we're so incapable of facing things that when we try to do that in meditation, we it, it freaks us out, it, it, it gives rise to lots of problems. And it's what really makes meditation hard, is that we're incapable of facing without reacting. Anytime we're confronted with something that uh, would give rise to a reaction, the reaction is almost immediate, and we're unable to see them objectively, see the objects objectively. So it basically is a description of the work that you have to do to learn how to face your experiences without reacting to them. Because again, outside of practice, it's there's no facing. There's mostly just running away from, appeasing, following, living as a slave unto our desires. I've become less social due to meditation. There is no longer desire. A meditative life seems incompatible with socializing. A life in solitude seems more appropriate. Do you recommend this? Well, more importantly, the Buddha recommended it, so you don't have to ask me. We have explicit recommendation from the Buddha. Bantancha Sayanasanang. It's the teaching of all Buddhas to find a secluded place to live. If you're a person who can appreciate the greatness of that, then kudos to you, and I certainly recommend it. I make cancer imaging agents at a biopharma company. My colleagues give animals cancer and then inject my product. Animals are then killed for further testing. 
I don't participate directly, but I am, am I producing negative karma, and is this considered wrong livelihood? Well, I don't know what cancer imaging agents are. If they're poisonous or cancer-causing, then you'd have a problem, but it sounds like they are uh, agents which allow uh, the visualization of cancer. That's my guess. I assume that you're just talking about something that, like a dye or something, I don't know, that allows um, you to see the cancer over uh, some kind of machine. I don't know. So, yeah, that, uh, clearly that isn't involved directly in any sort of killing, and making those imaging agents is not unwholesome karma. So you kind of dodge a bullet there. However, you are still working for a company that it sounds like is involved in mass slaughter of, not just slaughter, but um, torture of living beings, which is a horrible, horrible thing. And people engaged in that industry are horrible, horrible I don't want to say horrible, horrible people, that just sounds bad, but have incredible corruption in the mind. I mean, that isn't, the, that isn't just some religious teaching I'm giving you. You can verify it. You ever spend time with these people, and it's unpleasant. Um, it's, it's kind of saddening to see how they almost sometimes uh, seem like lab animals, and you know kind of where they're going when they die. Because uh, there's no escaping karma. So you're working for that company, and I'm not saying that that makes you a bad person or anything, but it doesn't seem completely clean. So I guess what I would say is I wouldn't recommend working for such a company, but I think you can, if you're in the position where you need the job to live, and without it you would die then to be patient with it, but clearly to understand and appreciate that the company you're working for doesn't sound like a, a wholesome operation, to say the least. Not even to say the least, to, to avoid, the, avoid saying what's true is that it's horrible. What these companies do is just eh, terrible. And it's a, probably the cause for a lot of the illnesses that we now face because there's a lot of karmic repercussions. But that's harder to see, I think, if not impossible. You'd have to be a Buddha probably to see exactly how that works. So Mostly I would just focus on what it does to your mind. Their minds, not necessarily yours if you're not actually involved in the killing. Are there differences between Goenka Vipassana meditation and the Mahasi method? Well, you can learn for yourself. They're not hard. It's not hard to find instructions on how to practice both. Um, I, mean, I think it's a somewhat of a... I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know who you are or where this is coming from, but nowadays it's not hard to find even briefly information on the two. And so I'd recommend you do that, and you'll see the differences. Is that fair to say? I mean, maybe it, there's some things. I mean, some of the differences, I guess, you'll just have to find when you go to 
practice the two of them because not all the information is out there, of course. I don't know. I mean, I don't know too much about the Goenka tradition. I know that it is different. So the answer is yes. I feel an impulse to check news every 15 minutes constantly. Is this an addiction? If so, how can I overcome it? Sounds pretty addictive, pretty, you know, kind of like an addiction. Um, but really, it's not, honestly, going back to the other addiction question as well, the other central desire question, they're not usually the first thing you have to focus on. Don't worry about such things, not so much, not in the beginning. Um, appreciate that they can sometimes get in the way of your life, but honestly, mindfulness solves these problems it changes your perspective on things you can't just decide not to for example check the news every 15 minutes you have to change your perspective on reality you have to change your outlook change the direction you're going in um, provide some direction sometimes because sometimes you're just so bored and have nothing better to do so you just go ahead and check the news every 15 minutes through the cultivation of mindfulness you give yourself something better to do and and you feel better doing it and so that just takes away any desire to do all the other impulsive things that you might engage in i mean it's not it's simple it, it's not trivial it's hard work and it can take years or even lifetimes to master but it's not it's not there's no mystery to it it's not um it's not a esoteric sort of path. So if you haven't done our at-home course, that's where I'd recommend. Read our booklet, do the at-home course, see if that helps you. If you've done all that, well, maybe do an intensive course. But again, it's not the end of the world if you check the news every 15 minutes. It's not going to destroy your practice. So it's kind of more down the road eventually as your mind starts to change and you get rid of some of the coarser defilements you start to approach and, and deal with these more subtle ones. The key in the beginning is to get to the point where you no longer want to kill, steal, lie, cheat, take drugs or alcohol. If you can get to the point where those are no longer attractive in the slightest, then, then you've made progress, and then you can start to approach the more subtle ones. Is there a danger... For someone with OCD who does rituals to undo the unwholesome mind states that they become aware of, to just adopt a different type of ritual by learning this practice, noting. You're right, so no, there is no danger because it's a different kind of ritual. There's no, in mindfulness, there's no, um, there's no, What's the word? There's no desire to undo. There's no inclination. There's no um, drive to undo involved. There's, there's nothing in mindfulness that involves fixing. And that's the key. That's what makes it different from other kind of rituals. Other rituals that are looking for a result. Mindfulness mm, is kind of not looking for a result. It's not looking for a result in relation to the object. It's looking for a result in the change in how we perceive the object. 
but your focus isn't on the result. Your focus is just on the quality of mind, the, the, the approach that you take. You're really just zeroed in on uh, the state of mind, the quality of mind, not concerned with results, not concerned with fixing anything. When I'm being anxious and trying to note it, it gets amplified. Do I need more practice to see it more clearly? Any advice? It gets amplified. Again, this is the same as the other question. So yes, we've had this question many times. Yes, it can get amplified because you're not avoiding it. You're facing it, which is in the beginning overwhelming. Um, but that just takes practice. But it's also amplified because of the, the clarity of mind. You're just seeing it more clearly. Uh, a key part of this is going to be a changing your perspective on even anxiety. And instead of seeing anxiety as a problem, see it as an experience. You have to get over the fact that, you get over the idea, not the fact, get over the idea that there's something wrong when you're anxious, because that makes you more anxious. Um, so what I'm saying is, even if the anxiety gets amplified, you have to you have to get over the idea that that's a bad thing. You have to change your perspective. That's the the whole essence of of the practice. The whole perspective is on seeing things clearly rather than trying to fix them. So when pain is amplified, when emotions are amplified. Stop seeing that as a problem. I mean, what it's showing you technically is the three characteristics. Unpredictable. You don't know whether it's going to get better or worse. It's suffering. I mean, it's obviously anxiety is not pleasant. And it's non-self. You're not in control. You thought by noting it, it would get, it would get better. Why isn't it going away when I note? Non-self. It's not under your control. It doesn't belong to you. You need to change your perspective on it. I mean, mindfulness provides that perspective where you're not afraid when it gets stronger. You're not taken off guard or overwhelmed no matter how strong or how intense it might become because you don't see it as a problem anymore. You just see it as an experience. That's why we use the noting, not to get rid of it. You mentioned in an earlier discussion that incorrect labeling during meditation could lead to delusions. I am now fearful of noting imprecisely in case I delude myself. Please, may you advise? <laughs> uh, I think you may, I mean, that, that's kind of like taking it out of, out of um, not out of context, but um, out of proportion, blowing it out of proportion. So delusion is um, delusion is all the time. It's what makes you afraid. There's constant delusion anytime you're not mindful. Um, the the I mean real issues can yeah okay so real issues can come if you are noting something that it's not, but that's not a subtle thing. That's like. Um, if you're seeing something and you're not hearing, that would be very bad. 
that would be a that would screw up your mind but there's no secret there i mean that, that's that's not unobvious seeing is not hearing um if you start noting if you start noting things that you want to happen then it's going to screw up your mind because you're going to want things like if you say calm calm not because you're calm but because you want to be calm that's not very good it creates desire and it creates expectation it creates a sense of self, like you're trying to control things because you're trying to create it. Uh, but, I mean, in this case, my, the, the sort of the, the, the real issue here is, is the fear. And it, it, you have to focus on the fear rather than obsessing over using the correct label. Because, yes, it's possible to get into trouble there, but that's not your problem. Your problem is the fear. So that's just a sign that you have this habit of getting afraid of things that are dangerous. Um, it's like if someone gets afraid because they see a bear or a person with a gun or something. Reasonable, but um, yeah, just focus on the fear. Don't, don't, don't. Don't obsess over this idea that you could use the wrong labeling. You have to, it's a kind of a misunderstanding what I was saying. It's pretty obvious. I mean, yes, it is true, but this goes for any meditation. Meditation is involving the mind, and it's, of course, a very powerful thing. You can mess up your mind if you're not following directions. And no question that anytime you decide to undertake meditation, you're uh, engaging in something that has the power to really help you, but it also has the power, if you, you do practice it wrongly, to send you in the wrong direction. But one wrong direction, for example, is getting afraid of things. That's a bad direction. That's going to cause you problems if you if you cultivate that fear and if you're not mindful of it. I mean, it's why mindfulness is so valuable, because it's not dangerous. But it has to be mindfulness. And it's not hard to understand that, really. It's not hard to understand. It's not a subtle thing where, whoops, all this time I was doing something that was destroying me, uh, destroying my mind. It's more that you really just didn't get the concept of of mindfulness, which is quite simple. Seeing is seeing, hearing is hearing. If you're labeling things as they are, it's not a subtle thing. But like, what was one of the examples that you might have been referring to that I was talking about? Like when you watch the breath and you say buddho buddho i think that's a terrible idea i don't think it go i mean again there's there's very famous teachers who use that practice so power to them and some of them may get very strong states but from what i've seen they also get quite a, a, a significant amount of delusion from what i've seen but that's quite simple is the breath buddha no it's not the breath is the breath you should never note things as they aren't So it's not about imprecision. It's not. It's not like. It's not the word imprecision isn't correct. It has nothing to do with noting imprecisely. Noting wrongly is much different from noting imprecisely. Precise isn't important. Right is important. You just don't note things as they aren't. That's all. When you're angry, don't know liking or wanting or. You know, when you dislike something, don't note liking. Don't note to try to get rid of something. Note 
things as they are to remind yourself that's what they are and it's not impre- precision is not is, is not important it can be imprecise and still be okay that's not a problem but if it's wrong it's wrong and that's not a good thing and it can have long-term repercussions i think but they're more long-term repercussions it's not like suddenly you go crazy I have meditated for around six years. I have reached the point where I am ready to detach further, materially, to the next level. I live very minimally. I wish to devote more time to meditation as well. Advice? I'll devote more time to meditation. And I don't have any advice to correct your perception i mean unless you're conceited about all this because you very well might be that's a common thing even for very good meditators to be conceited about their good qualities so that's something to always watch out for though i don't know whether that's the case um i mean practically speaking you should consider to do an intensive course in meditation i don't know if you have ever done an intensive course in meditation that's really the beginning where you should always start and if you've done one already, well, then do another one. Seven years. The maximum is seven years to become an arahant. If you practice, stay in your room and just meditate for seven years. That's the maximum it could take. What are your thoughts on doing yoga and other breathing exercises and postures popular in yoga? I don't have any thoughts on those. Can you suggest some ways to practice mindfulness in our day-to-day life as a commoner? Unlike monks, common folks like me have attachments and bonding in our day-to-day lives. I don't know if you read our booklet on how to meditate. Uh, It does go over some of that. Um, I would recommend, if you haven't, to do our at-home course. I mean, I'm just repeating myself, sorry, but... Uh, it's, you know, we've set this up for that reason because this is the answer that we propose. So, yeah, that's what I would recommend. Don't know if maybe you've done that already. I would still recommend trying to find a way to do a, an intensive course if you have time. Take an actual vacation. But the at-home course also gives you a lot of uh, insight in how to be mindful living in, in lay life. I don't think there's anything special that needs to be said. I mean, there's no, there's no special. A lot of the questions we get are, are asking for special advice. Like, do you, what, 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 do you have any, any tips or something? And there really isn't anything secret. It's pretty simple, which can be frustrating because you want to be guided, but um, that kind of defeats the purpose. It has to come from within. You have to learn it for yourself. You can't talk someone to enlightenment. There's only one way to be mindful. That's to be mindful. The Buddha said, it's better to live one day to see risings and ceasings, meaning the Buddha used this technique to practice meditation and to become enlightened? The Buddha 
the way the Buddha became enlightened is quite specific. Um, he practiced mindfulness of the breath, so similar to what we do. But that he, he only practiced it in a way that led to tranquility. And in the third watch of the night, he contemplated Paticca Samuppada, which is similar to what we do and could be the same, but he didn't need the technique that we use, I don't think. I think it's probably fair to say he didn't need any technique. He just applied his mind, and his mind was so pure that he saw immediately. I mean, you could say it's the same technique because he would have acknowledged things as they are, but it wouldn't have taken even an hour to do. It was more a matter of as soon as he applied his mind, he knew kind of thing. I mean, it sounds like I wasn't there, of course, and even if I was, I still wouldn't know. But uh, it sounds like it was pretty uh, impressive and trivial in a sense. I mean, trivial because he had done countless eons of work already. So it was quite direct and simple. Not to, not to trivialize it, but he didn't have to do walking and sitting as we do. But I don't know how that relates to why, why you would think that that somehow relates to the saying. Um, because that saying has nothing to do with actual technique. But, of course, that's an important part of our technique, is that through practicing the four foundations of mindfulness, you will begin to see the arisings and ceasing. How does one deal with manipulative people who tend to pull you in arguments constantly? Well, people can't really pull you in. You just have to get better at not being pulled in. Uh, smiling and walking away can work, though it can make them very upset, which is not really your problem. You don't have to try and prevent people from getting upset. Sometimes they have to realize that that's not the proper response, and they have to realize for themselves. Not your job to deal with people. You just have to deal with yourself. You don't have to be... You aren't responsible for their reactions. You're responsible for your actions and your reactions. So try and watch your own feet. You don't have to deal with people. Just deal with yourself. Is the purpose of noting to realize that I am the awareness that is noting, so it creates a distance between the real I and the experience? No, no, it is not. That is not the purpose. Um, I don't know what this real I you're talking about is. I've never found such a thing. The theory is that it uh, is not an accurate represent accurate description of reality. So there's also no interest in creating distance between one thing or another thing, even referring to things that do exist. Now, the purpose of noting is reminding you of the object so that you don't make more of it than it is or less of it than it is, that you just Make it what it is. That's all. 
No idea of self or this self or that self or I or the real I. None of that plays a part. Is Nibbana lasting happiness because of understanding? Family and friends are worried and asked why I meditate. I answer lasting happiness or peace of mind. I wondered if this is the ultimate goal. It is, but it's a bit misleading for people because they think you're just you're just sitting down and feeling very calm. I would prefer telling people it's for seeing clearly. I really think that's more relatable and more reasonable, more noble. Um, because if you omit that part, then then it, it it's not clear whether you're talking about practicing samatha or practicing vipassana. Because samatha is also for, okay, it's maybe not technically lasting happiness, but it kind of is. And it's okay because you said lasting happiness, that you're kind of implying that it's something that comes from wisdom, but that's not clear to anyone who hears it. Peace of mind is also, I mean, there you have, you've dropped the lasting part, so... Peace of mind is something that samatha does give you, just not, um, it's not that it's not lasting, it's that it's not uh, permanent, it's not stable. That's the, the difference. But the point is that anyone who hears that is just going to think you're sitting down to feel calm, which is trivializing the, the important part, the work that you're doing to see clearly. So I would never really focus on that, especially if you're talking to someone else. Again, our focus isn't on those goals. Our focus is on reminding ourselves of what things are so that we can see them clearly and not be deluded. I think that impresses people a lot more because they appreciate that it's not just lazy or self-centered or so on. It's about actually making yourself a better person, a person who is wiser and more clear, has a more clear perspective of things greater mental clarity which is beneficial not just for yourself but others as well can noting the fear of death when it arises some days lead up to me being free from it yes that's the whole point But um, you kind of have to remember to take a broader perspective that you can't be a one-issue meditator. <laughs> like, what is this word? There's a, a one-issue one voter or something? If you're voting in an election and you only have one issue, you can't be a one-issue meditator. So don't focus on one, one thing to try to get rid of it. Um, because... Fear of death might be a long-term thing that is harder to get rid of. Probably not. Fear of death is probably one of the things you can do away with pretty quickly, relatively quickly. But so, but two things. First of all, you have to deal with right, what's right in front of you. And if that's fear of death, great. If it's something else, don't get distracted by an obsession with one issue. Focus on what you're experiencing. And the other thing is that it takes work. So... Occasional practice isn't going to be all that effective. If you can practice every day, that's great. If you can do intensive practice, that's the best. How do I know when my path, for example, regarding a job, 
is right for me. When there is a lot of resistance coming from externals, how do I know if this is a phase or I should stop and change direction? I mean, kind of you know from practicing mindfulness, but one thing that you'll start to learn from mindfulness is that things like jobs are pretty inconsequential. Which job you do is only consequential in terms of the ethical qualities of it. So it's consequential if it's involved killing, for example, then that's consequential. Um, it could also be consequential if it's a wholesome job. So then you could say, oh, this is a better job because it provides me the opportunity to, to cultivate wholesomeness. Uh, I mean, one example is not having to work a lot, right? Maybe you don't get paid as much, but you don't have to think so much, you don't have to work so much. Some job that gives you the opportunity to cultivate mindfulness when you're on the job and gives you the time off to be able to cultivate mindfulness off work. But path doesn't involve the things you do uh, I mean, especially not the things that are worldly, conceptual things. The path only involves the quality of your mind as you do things, as you engage in the world. So not only will you learn, okay, killing living beings for a living isn't good, but you'll also learn that apart from that, it doesn't matter whether I'm a carpenter or a plumber or an electrician. All that matters is my capacity to be mindful to see clearly. Can a Buddha endure a difficult meditation over some time by observing how it is progressing through five stages of grief? Buddha doesn't have any difficult meditation. There's nothing difficult for a Buddha. There's nothing difficult for an Arahant even. There's no grief for a Buddha. So... I think um, you may have a different idea of this word that you're using, the Buddha. Because a person who is enlightened has no grief uh, and also has nothing difficult. They find nothing difficult. I guess depending how you define that, but pretty much nothing difficult. Basically, yeah. It's, I don't know where where they would ever call something difficult. They might acknowledge that something was generally perceived as being difficult by others, but a Buddha doesn't have any difficulty with that thing, so there's no sense of them having to endure it. They just um, they just live through it without any difficulty. But yeah, no no stages of grief for a Buddha. What is the antidote to conceit? Uh, arahantship. Even an anagami still has conceit. That's kind of a cop out. What is the direct antidote? I mean, clarity. Seeing clearly. Conceit is a kind of a delusion. And the direct antidote to delusion is wisdom, clarity. Until we've run through the questions. Okay. No, we made it. We had an hour. So there weren't many questions in the beginning, but uh, it's amazing how we have 
always a good set of questions. So thank you all for your sincere interest in these things. I appreciate that. And I hope that the answers, some answers were helpful. And I wish for you all to find success in your practice and on your spiritual journeys. Find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. And that you have a good week. And maybe we'll see you back next week. Thank you, Chris and Rahid, for helping. Was there anybody Jim as else? Well. Jim as well. Okay. And everybody else in the chat. Sadhu. Sadhu. <laughs>